You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hi, I'm Yondan Latu, Chief News Editor at The Post. Welcome to a special episode of Behind the Story. I recently had a very interesting chat about China's COVID situation with one of the most credible and insightful experts on the scene. Veteran journalist and commentator Wang Shangwei also shared his thoughts on the outlook for China after the pandemic and Hong Kong's role as a bridge between the country and the rest of the world, which has become more relevant than ever. The video interview was published on our YouTube channel, so be sure to check it out. Here is the longer podcast version by popular demand. Wang Shangwei, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's good to see an old friend and colleague. Um, uh, for those in our audience who are not very familiar with your work, and your work is quite prolific, uh, I, I want to explain to them that you're, I consider you a, a real China expert. We have a lot of pretenders to the throne uh, being trotted out in uh, the Western media, um, saying all kinds of things about China. You in particular stand out as somebody who's a China hand, who, who gives Thank us you. an insider's perspective. But you're not an apologist for China. You're somebody who explains China. Right, and that comes to when it comes to negative stuff, you you report uh, problems with China, but it's all fact-based rather than opinions and, and feelings. So, on that happy note, let's start with what's happening in China. The whole whole world is talking about it. They've okay. pivoted away from this uh, suddenly from the zero COVID uh, strategy, and uh, it seems to be chaos, uh, yeah. panic, chaos, yeah. confusion, people yeah. flooding hospitals, morgues. Can you give us? a true picture of what's happening on the ground right now. Okay, the majority of the population in major cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, uh, you name it, Wuhan, I think they, they have achieved uh, you know, the herd immunity. I think, over, I think the latest figures I saw that over 90% of the population in Beijing uh, were already infected. So I think the uh, things have returned to normal in major cities. Uh, you know, one, you know, you know, from the news and from through my conversation with my friends and family in Beijing, and also the, the most notorious traffic jams in the major cities are back. It's a sign of life. However, now the virus is spreading in the rural areas, in the vast rural areas where, I don't know, over 600, 700 million uh, 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 farmers live. You know, the rural areas are the places where China's public health infrastructure is the, is the weakest. And now we have the Chinese New Year coming on, and, and then there will be a massive migration of, of migrant laborers returning to home. So I think, let's say the worst in the major cities is over. And I think the worst is yet to come in the rural areas. I think, uh, you know, we still need to keep a very close eye on those developments. Rural areas, I mean, you'll also be talking about a lot of uh, elderly people, right? Yeah. Because migrant workers, the, yeah. the younger generation, all yeah. moves to the city to, uh, yeah. to work. Yeah. So uh, the vaccination rate uh, for among the elderly is a bit problematic. Uh, yeah, so it is. I mean, it's, you know, now with the benefit of hindsight, right? I think, you know, I wrote about this in one of my columns. I think from the very beginning that the, 
the National Health Commission advised China's leaders very wrongly. I think from the very beginning, when China rolled out the vaccines, you know, its own uh, vaccines, the advice from the National Health Commission was that the vaccines were only suitable for people at the age from the age of 18 to 59. So the message was then that the vaccines were not very good for anybody over 60 and below 18. I think if you talk about, I mean, there have been so many stories about the uh, vaccine hesitancy among the elderly in China over the past few years. I mean, I think if, if we look back, I think the bad advice from the very beginning from the National Health Commission sold the uh, seed of doubt among the elderly. And so from then on, it's very difficult for uh, China's, for China to persuade the elderly to, re to receive vaccinations. Messaging, you, you talked about, that, that is a problem with the messaging. Considering that uh, the majority of the population in China, they believe what they hear on state media because that's yeah. the only access to real Absolutely. media that they have, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, given that, what I wanted to ask you was how much of it is actually uh, disease-driven, where people are genuinely in a health crisis when they're flooding hospitals and, yeah. uh, and you know, flocking to uh, doctors yeah. and overwhelming the system. Yeah. And how much it, of it is to, you can blame it on the fact that for three years, you told this population that this virus was dangerous. Yeah. Dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. It's yeah. deadly. You have yeah. to be careful. You yeah. have to lock down. You yeah. have to be isolated. You have to be treated like yeah. this, right? And then all of a sudden, without a roadmap, without a proper timetable, there was a sudden shifting away from this whole thing yeah. and an opening up. Yeah. So uh, people going to hospitals, how much can you blame them if it's just mild symptoms? Because they believe that it's deadly. They've been told yeah. it's deadly. And yeah. all of a sudden, uh, it's free for all. I know, I know. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm very upset about this. You know, l let me answer this question of yours, which is very important in the following ways. First, I wasn't surprised at all. I mean, because you know, China should have opened in summer. What I was surprised that is China has decided to reopen in the middle of middle the of winter. winter when the respiratory diseases peak, usually peak. Why China, I mean, did that? Now in the past few days, the state media, the official epidemiologists in China sort of started to defend this line. They tried to put a positive spin and saying that, you know, this sudden reopening was well planned, well thought out. But in fact, as I have written, as SCMP has written, as, as all the overseas media reports have written, that this reopening was not planned, was, was a sudden decision and then they did not have exit plan from the zero COVID, which uh, I was, again, very surprised with. But, you know, we can talk about that later. The end result is that China was unprepared totally for the reopening. I, you know, let me give you an example that from the very first day of the reopening early December, that there was a widespread shortage of cold and the fever medicine in China. You have 
we have to put this into context that China is one of the world's major producers of those kind of medicine. And then, so why there was a sudden shortage is because until the reopening that the authorities placed very strict restrictions on sale of fever medicine at, at the pharmacies. Because at that time, uh, that the idea was to implement the zero COVID policy. So the authorities will not allow ordinary people to self-isolate at home. So if you, I mean, the idea was if you develop a fever, you should have yourself tested and then be quarantined for a month or 20 days. So if you go at that time, if you went to a pharmacy and you wanted to buy fever medicine, you have to fill in lots of detailed informations and then you have to have yourself tested uh, that day and the following day. Otherwise, your health code uh, will, be, uh, will be blacklisted. Then you couldn't go anywhere. So the result is that most of the pharmacies in China sort of, of course, sort of stocked very few fever medicine. And then because of the paltry demands from the pharmacies, and then China's pharmaceutical companies have stopped producing the fever medicine. I mean, because there was no demand. And then all of a sudden, when China decided to reopen allow people to self-medicate and self-isolate at home, there was a huge shortage of fever medicine. Now the government is ordering every pharmaceutical company to ramp up production 24-7. And then we come back to the question, you know, if China decided to reopen, why China didn't plan for that? And the second point I want to make is, the Chinese government, or this party, is always proud of their capabilities mm -hmm. to, to uh, prepare for the rainy day. You know, ever since our president Xi Jinping came to power, he often made the point that China, every official should have what he called the bottom line thinking, which basically means preparing for the uh, worst case scenario. And then he often urged officials to, uh, to guard against the threats of black swan or gray rhinos. This pandemic is a combination of a black swan <laughs> and gray rhino. And in the end, there was no preparation. Having said that, you know, as seen in other countries, right? The reopening from COVID definitely will lead some chaos. Now we are talking about a population 1.4 billion. No matter how prepared China was, the opening will lead to chaos. But I want to stress that if China did have a plan, you know, we wouldn't have seen this uh, harrowing chaos of uh, sort of elderly dying in the hospitals, uh, uh, having the emergency services swamped, and then the morgues overflown with uh, 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 bodies. Third point I want to make is, is communication. You see, you and I 
we're in the communication business. I've been. Yeah. I, I uh, shake my head at China's communication <laughs> all the time. Yeah. That's why they lose their audience. The, the messaging Absolutely. is so bad. Absolutely. Even if China decided to reopen in the middle of the winter, I mean, there were a lot of things the authorities should have done to mitigate this, you know, in terms of messaging. You know, for instance, before they reopen, you know, what they should have done is that they should have uh, uh, China's top epidemiologists on TV, right, sort of explaining why China was reopening, right? And then, you know, how the ordinary people should uh, uh, self-medicate, should self-isolate. I think that should happen before they're reopening. Now it is the epidemiologists and China's officials are doing that now. I think it was too late. And then secondly, I still find it difficult to understand why China has refused the offers of vaccines from US and from Europe, right? I mean, over the past three years, they always say they want to place uh, people's health first. They want to place the uh, people's lives first. And now, I think what China should have done is to accept any help from international community. I mean, that's what China did in the first two years. China offers billions, billions of doses of vaccines to developing countries. And, and, and China has learned a lot of goodwill. And now China is in trouble. I mean, you know, obviously, but because of national pride or because of ideology or because of other things, they are, you know, at the very beginning, they refused. But now, I, before I came on your show, that the Pfizer announced that now they were going to uh, uh, offer the, uh, you know, their emergency drug packs, love it, uh, to Chinese manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And now they're going to mass produce that. I think this is something that China should have done. And thirdly, I think in terms of messaging, again, on communication, I think the Chinese officials should have shared more information with the in international community. I mean, you know, with the WHO. I mean, the WHO Secretary General made the point that China was under-reporting, uh, 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 you know, what is happening in China. I mean, sure. those the stuff that any responsible country should have done. And then why China did not do it? I mean, that's a very interesting point that we need to think about. As I said earlier, you know, Xi Jinping has been saying and urging that every official to prepare for the worst case scenario. In the end, we did not see a plan and the worst case scenario happened. I think you know, now it's happened, right? But it's still very important for the Chinese authorities and, and to uh, reflect and review what seriously went wrong. I could offer you uh, some of my uh, uh, speculation, right? First of all, that as you know that every five years that China has this uh, uh, leadership changes, yes. right? The recent reshuffle we have. Yeah, you know, the recent reshuffles we have seen. This is, you know, for the Communist Party, this is very, the most important thing for them. So, however, 
China's political cycle, this every five year, runs from the Party Congress in October, November to March, where the MPC, CPPCC, the annual sessions, sessions uh, are held. And then in terms of, but all the major leadership positions are decided at the Party Congress, like the one, like the 20th Party Congress in, in, in October. However, that the Chinese leaders will have to go through the motions to wait for the confirmation of their government positions. So I think the original idea of the party, of the Chinese government, was that to reopen after March. It's because for them, this political cycle is so important that they don't want any trouble, they don't want any bad news, they don't want anything. They want people to focus on the, the, uh, why this leadership change is so important for China and for the rest of the world. I mean, we have, re I mean, not we, SCMP, you can say we, it's okay. <laughs> we still count you one of us, China, thank even you, though you've you. abandoned us. Yeah, no, no. Uh, uh, the SAMP reported uh, that in the middle of the 20th Party Congress, the Chinese government even uh, uh, delayed their GDP uh, quarterly reports because they don't want anything to, uh, to uh, disrupt this agenda. So I think their original idea is to reopen in March and then gradually to fully reopen in summer. I think that was a good plan. And then the thing is, I mean, the, the virus has become so infectious and, 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 and then that, that they have to sort of reopen earlier. But still, not, that cannot explain the way why they do not have a worst case scenario plan. An right? exit strategy, right? Yeah, exit strategy on that. So a few factors have contributed to the uh, sudden reopening. One is that, you know, I flew to Hong Kong on November 27th. That was a very tense moment in China because a massive students' protests started over that weekend. On Friday, Saturday, Sunday was the peak. And then on Monday, it died down. I think uh, there were so many reports about some students in Shanghai calling, for, calling on uh, top China, China's to top down. leader to step down. But that was only the minority. Most of the students were angry with the zero COVID policies. And then Jiang Zemin died. And that really made the China's leaders very much nervous. So once the students sort of uh, were on the streets, so what the top leaders did was to quickly sort of uh, decided to uh, make Jiang's funeral the uh, highest level, right? You know. I was in Beijing and I saw Xi Jinping uh, 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 led his wife and, and all of the China's top leaders in Beijing to uh, receiving the plane uh, which carried Jiang's body. And, and you know, like standing in the freezing cold and, and, and in, in the first seven days of Jiang's death, which, would, which is uh, very important uh, according to the China's custom, 
that, you know, he mentioned Jiang's legacy and, and saying he will, you know, he will follow his legacy and all that. I think he's, he's trying to, to, he was trying to tell the students and the rest of the population that he will make Jiang's funeral, the, um, you know, as the unprecedented, on an unprecedented level. So you students didn't have to come out on the streets anymore. And, and, and then so, and then he will have to make a quick decision on reopening. And then something else happened. China lined up a very important summit with the uh, Arab countries. The first China-Arab summit was that summit is very important for China, you know, in the whole geopolitical game with the United States. So she will have to fly to Riyadh uh, on the seventh day when Jiang's, when Jiang's funeral was held. So all this sort of, all these factors combined together meant that he will have to make a quick decision on reopening. So now, according to the reports being uh, recently filed, it turned out that President Xi chaired a Politburo meeting on the 6th of December on reopening. And then he flew out of the country to Riyadh for four days. So which means he has a very short period of window that he will have to make a decision to reopen. I mean, because to calm the students, to calm the rest of the population, and that happened, right? But the protests were merely the trigger. I think the underlying reasons is, I think by that time, China's top leaders finally realized the magnitude of the devastating impact of the zero COVID policies on the Chinese economy. I think uh, uh, several important influential businessmen and, and politicians played a very important part in persuading China's top leadership to change its mind. First, that was reported by Bloomberg, by us, by SCMP and by others, is that the chairman uh, of Foxconn, you know, the major iPhone supplier, Terry Gore. He, they were already having big problems with their factory. Yeah, yeah. He wrote a letter which was passed on to Xi Jinping and urging him to stop zero COVID policies. He basically argued if China continued with this zero COVID policies, that China's role in the entire global supply chain will be seriously affected. Second person, which others did not report, but I reported in one of my columns, is that uh, one of Xi Jinping's closest allies, uh, Huang Kunming, he was the, the country's propaganda minister until October, uh, until the leadership changes. And then after the leadership changes, he has become the party secretary of Guangdong. As you know, Guangdong is our neighbor and also one of China's uh, growth engines, yeah, growth, growth engines and economic powerhouses. And Guangdong alone, just give you this context to give readers, uh, to give our viewers the context, Guangdong accounts for 25% 
of China's total exports. I think he was in Guangdong and he got his first hand, you know, information about what really happened in Guangdong, right? I think from what I heard that he made a personal appeal to see about the urgency of relaxing the zero COVID policies. If you recall, there was one particular event which also uh, contributed uh, to this reopening is that early December, there was a riot by the migrant laborers because they were in lockdown for weeks and months and, 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 and they didn't have anything to eat. They, they uh, didn't have any income. Uh, uh, so there was a riot. So in the end, that what happened was at the very beginning, uh, SMP also reported about this. Suddenly, Guangzhou, the capital city of Guangdong province, was the first city to relax, right? So I think it is very safe to assume if Huang Kunming did not have the go-ahead from, from the great leader, you know, Huang Kunming wouldn't have dared allow Guangzhou to become the first city to relax. And then sort of later on, other cities caught on and then the, 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 you know, you know, the whole China reopened. So what uh, 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 does this story tell you is that, you know, they finally comprehended the kind of a magnitudes of the devastation on the economy. So I think all these factors combined together that uh, 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 which uh, uh, persuaded China's top leaders to reopen. Now, uh, again, back on messaging. If the Chinese leaders came out and told us, you and I and the rest of the population, why, you know, what I have told you, what you and I have discussed, I think people would have understood. You know, they would, you know, and, and the international community would have understood. But still, they still sort of, uh, 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 sort of go on with this line, ridiculous line that this reopening was well thought out, well planned in the middle of the winter. And then this uh, official epidemiologist, uh, Liang Wanyan, uh, who uh, uh, advises the National Health Commission, said, you know, like give an interview on CCTV. Uh, you know, he was trying to argue that China reopened it because recently most of the elderly, uh, most of the elderly people received uh, vaccination. Mm -hmm. So they want to reopen in the winter so that, you know, right now the efficacy of their vaccine uh, uh, was very strong. So if they decided to wait for a few months, the efficacy, uh, you know, would uh, lessen. I, you know, I would, I find that in, you know, ridiculous. I find that very sort of ridiculous. You know, if you just purely on the sake of argument, right? Yes, it is important for, for, for China to make sure that the elderly receive the proper vaccinations, uh, you know, uh, that the efficacy is still very strong. However, I mean, 
if you delay this, and then you can continue to give uh, boosters to the to the elderly uh, uh, people. So that shouldn't be counted as a factor to reopen in the middle of winter. You know, we can talk about this uh, uh, for hours. You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very upset <coughs> that China have uh, three years to learn from the reopening chaos in 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 other countries. Yes, but in the end, it didn't learn anything. I mean, why is that? That's that really uh, that really makes me very very upset. It really begs the question, isn't it? The three years of lockdown, three years of brutal enforcement of, uh, of uh, COVID restrictions and uh, the carnage, the economy, the social carnage, everything else. And now you almost seem to be back to square one. So is it really, was it worth it? Is uh, really yeah, I, Yondan, that's a very good question. You know, what I can tell you is this, is that in the first two years, China did a, a, a fantastic job keeping the virus at bay because China's economy was the first major economy to reopen and then China posted a very strong growth in 2020, slightly slower growth in 2021, but was still very healthy. I think that, you know, I have no argument at all with, I mean, I have no uh, uh, sort of a dispute with this argument that China did a fantastic job. I agree. Uh, you know, I think the Chinese officials always use that line to counter argue against those sort of people who suggested now, you know, China is, it, it, you know, did such a terrible job on reopening. It was a great takeoff and a great flight, but yeah. they can't stick the landing. That, that's, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, that, 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 and then, yeah, I mean, that's what I want to say is that the virus has mutated. The virus have, has changed. And the people's view and the thinking on the virus has also changed. But however, China's zero policies have not changed. Mm -hmm. There was no exit plan. Shengwei, you know, the economic carnage that uh, COVID has wrought yeah. on China uh, there's no denying it, no. and we will be counting the cost in the months to come and even years to come of how much damage it has done. But going back to the protests again, uh, there's no doubt that that also played a role in influencing uh, yeah. uh, the, the Chinese leaders' minds yeah. about uh, stepping back right yeah. from the brink. What I do want to ask is, if you, you must have surely seen the uh, Western media coverage, the Anglo-Saxon yeah. media, mainstream yeah. media in particular. Yeah. I mean, it was breathless coverage about these protests now signal yeah. the downfall of the yeah. Communist Party. Yeah. Breathless, almost hope, uh, hopeful reporting that yeah. can, are we finally seeing the end? Yeah. Were we even close to it? Were they way no, off? No, 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 no. I mean, I mean because uh, I wrote about this in one of my uh, columns on my own publishing platform. Uh, uh, you know, by the way, I'm going to resume writing for SMP, but you know, after I get my teaching career. Oh, very career, good news. So we hear it here uh, first. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get my uh, teaching career uh, sort of uh, off to a start first. I think, you know, one point I made is that ever since the uh, students' protest started on November 25th, and then uh, some overseas media have quickly labeled this as a 
white paper, blank paper, A4 paper revolution. And I made that point very early on in one of my columns. I said, you know, first of all, it was not a revolution. I mean, there was, you know, the, you know, there was the uh, students' protests uh, were very peaceful, and uh, for the majority of the student protesters, they were angry with the excessive zero COVID policies. You know, I mean, and then of course there were protesters uh, 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 in Shanghai and in Beijing were. Uh, who were also not very happy with the governance uh, of of China, but I think the majority of the people just were so happy to see the the, the COVID zero policies lifted, and I think by you see what happens is that uh, over the past three years, that all this economic hardship, the hiring reports. All this uh, uh, suffering were China's own doing, right? But the Chinese authorities were so eager to shift the blame to someone else. And then the, those Western media reports, which described this protest as a white paper revolution, mm. played right into the hands of Chinese authorities. Now Chinese authorities started to say, you know, there must be a hostile foreign forces behind this. In fact, there was none. There were just, and then... It's uh, an outpouring of frustration by yeah, the population. So yeah, that. anger, out, out, outpouring of frustration and anger about the excessive zero COVID policies. I mean, of course, every protest there is, you know, is, is political. But on this, seriously, is according to my observation and my own observation and and through talking to people in China. I mean, this was not politically motivated, but describing that, in fact, as I said earlier, played into the hands of the Chinese government. And also, that also showed the misunderstanding the uh, uh, some overseas media have about China. The after the weekend reports, uh, uh, after the weekend protests, I mean there were serious concerns in the overseas media whether those students will be uh, jailed or or anything like that. It turned out that you know only a few student leaders were asked by the police to the uh, police station, and uh, that's you know the. You know, the police just asked them some questions and and then they were released. I think that the authorities realized from the very beginning that the students' demands about lifting the COVID restrictions were very much legitimate. And they they will have to comply. And which they did. Much to the disappointment of China's critics in the West who are hoping <laughs> that this is the collapse. Yeah. Something that I've been hearing about since the breakup of the Soviet Union. I know, I know. I mean, they, you know, I, you know, of course, you know, for certain people outside China, you know, they saw this uh, sort of protest as a very sure sign of, of, of like serious trouble. 
within the leadership of the Communist Party. I don't agree with that because, you know, over the past year, I have been sort of speaking to diplomats in Beijing, foreign businessmen in Beijing, I mean, because they're all interested in the leadership changes, you know, where China will go from here. I mean, the point that I have made to them is that the fact that Xi Jinping could tax China's leadership lineup with such ease, he, he met no opposition at all. That shows he was totally in power. Let's say that this sudden reopening, I mean, whether that would uh, affect his uh, reputation and his, his governance, yes, I would say so. I mean, because, but again, I don't think it has weakened his power uh, by a very large degree. I think, uh, uh, but definitely, I think the Chinese leaders definitely should have a lot of things to reflect and uh, review. I mean, the many I mean, lessons to learn. Right? Many lessons to learn. Shangri, there was an uh, interesting takeaway from all these protests at the end uh, in President Xi Jinping's uh, uh, New Year message, where he acknowledged that there are differing views. I mean, that's hugely significant in, yeah, in yeah. terms of how rare that kind of admission is, yeah. right? So uh, moving on from all this, um, after the lessons of COVID, after the carnage, uh, economic and social carnage that uh, COVID has wrought, amid all the geopolitics, right, and China's problems now of, about being shut out from the supply chain by the US and its allies, the uh, cementing of the leadership re reshuffle, which is coming up now with the two sessions in March, What's next for China in terms of, you know, you've been covering for 30 years China's yeah. rise, yeah. right? And uh, the West and its, uh, its, its move to check that rise, to curb yeah. that rise. Yeah. Is the rise over? Is the rise very much in stride? It's just taken a little bit of a stumble and it's going to carry on. Okay, I, I think that's a very interesting question. And I think China's rise would continue. Uh, that's the first point I'm going to make. The second point was that now she has secured uh, his party chief position for his third term. Now that he has packed his leadership lineup with his allies, uh, and I think the word is that because the economy is so badly hit by the three years of zero COVID policies, I think the word is that the Chinese government is going to focus on growing the economy in the next few years. For China to do that, China needs more stability, both at home and abroad. At home, you know, which means, you know, the Chinese leaders made it very clear at the uh, National Economic Work Conference in December that, you know, China would encourage private sector to play uh, a bigger role in the economy. I mean, because for, for China's economy, China, China's economy is expected to grow about 3% for last year. And I think now they are trying to double that growth rate for this year. For that to happen, China will have to 
do whatever is possible to encourage the private sector to play a very big part. As you know, over the past two or three years, China's regulatory action against a, a broad spectrum of the private sector have really hit the confidence of the private sector. Now it's up to the Chinese government to restore that confidence. Again, you know, without boasting, I have written about this just one day after the National Economic uh, Conference is that I, you know, I wrote this headline myself. You know, right now it's my own column. I do not have the help of, of uh, <laughs> brilliant subbing team at SCMP. I have to do this column all by myself. But anyway, the uh, headline I wrote was that the days of sweet talking are over. Because the, 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 the confidence of the private sector uh, has been hurt so much over the past three years that, you know, I don't think their confidence can be re restored simply through sweet talking. So I think what is going to happen in the next few months or weeks uh, this year later is that I believe sooner or later, uh, probably this year, China is going to uh, end investigation into Ant Financial and, uh, 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 and then announce the results of their investigation. I think this whole saga involving private sector started with China's sudden decision to, to uh, 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 pull off uh, Ant's Financial's IPO. Now, you know, <coughs> Ant Financial is owned by Alibaba, Alibaba, Alibaba which owns uh, SCMP. Mm -hmm. So previously, I did not, uh, you know, I did not say very much on this. <laughs> now I'm no longer with yeah, SCMP, now you right? Can. You, now I can. I think this whole sort of regulatory action sort of starts sort of started with Ant Financial. And I think it is very appropriate for the Chinese government, if the Chinese government wants to restore the confidence of the private sector and also the confidence of the foreign investors. I think it's important that China uh, ends these regulatory actions by ending its investigation with Ant Financial. I think that will be a very positive message and I think it's going to happen uh, one way or another, I think that should be a good news. And secondly is that China should also do more to restore the confidence of foreign investors. I mean, because, you know, during China's regulatory uh, crackdown on private sector, I think the uh, Chinese and the foreign investors have lost, I don't know, two or three trillions of US dollars, lots of money. So I think, you know, that, so the pressure is on China's premier in waiting, Li Qiang. Uh, uh, the new guy. Uh, yeah, the new guy to, to, do, uh, to do a better job. And I think from, um, from, uh, uh, from what I have heard, I think he is a very capable, pragmatic guy. 
uh, I'm working on a story uh, which will say why uh, Li Qiang will be a more capable prime minister than the Li Keqiang. So uh, you stay why? tuned. Why? Why? No, tell, you, me, tell no, me one no, no, no. sentence, uh, just a summary. <clears throat> okay. One, one, one summary is this. I won't sort of give way too much. You know, the one sentence is this, that first of all, uh, uh, that he has the total confidence of our great leader. I mean, that's very important. You know, now she has all the power in, in his hands. That for the for the for the uh, premier to do a good job, he will have to have the confidence of the great leader. It, you know, I've been you know ever since uh, I was in Hong Kong. You know, ever since I'm I'm back to Hong Kong. I have met a lot of uh, sort of prominent Hong Kong businessmen, and they all ask me the question about our new premier. And this is what I have told them: is that you know uh, the uh, the premier's job, the premier's job, is just a bit like the CEO of a major conglomerate, right? If you want to accomplish something, that you have to get the full support from the chairman, right? If, if the chairman doesn't like the CEO, <laughs> so every time the CEO puts up a proposal, the, chairman, the, the chairman's first reaction will be, oh, is this guy set me up? Or, or, or you know, what he uh, wants with this proposal? But if the uh, CEO is his own guy, you know, he knows that this CEO would do uh, would uh, do things. Uh, the executor of the yeah, policy. Yeah, yeah, and then that will make the CEO or the premier's job much easier because he will have much more freedom and leeway to execute, right? That's one of the things. And for the others, you have to wait for my column. <laughs> okay. So Shengwei, uh, we're nearing the end of the, this interview. I would love to talk to you for hours more. You're always a very interesting to talk to. But let's uh, circle back to your moving back to Hong Kong. Yeah. And in the context uh, of what we discussed uh, and the number of references I made in particular to uh, the popular Western narrative when it comes to China reporting. And the other side of the coin, which is the kind of reporting that you do, and I'm not talking about state media here. I'm talking about independent China hands uh, who give us an insider's perspective. So uh, the thing is, when you try to explain China, right? when you try to correct misinformation, yeah. not necessarily defending China, just pointing out basic facts, yeah. because there are so many tropes going on. This yeah. whole yellow peril thing, yeah. you know, this yeah. offensive narrative yeah. now that consumes the Western media. Yeah. So people like you are outliers. Uh, the ones who don't let the facts spoil a good story, they're yeah. the ones who are featured everywhere when you switch on to the major news, yeah. uh, Western news channels, yeah. etc. Yeah. How do you cope with that? How do you cope with being shouted down as a CCP shill every time you say anything of that sort? And uh, by the way, I mean, I'm talking from a personal point of view here as well, because I do get shouted down as a <laughs> CCP shill as well, which yeah. is uh, deeply ironic considering that uh, this newspaper is actually banned yeah. in mainland China, right? Absolutely. So Website if we, if we the were newspaper. the CCP's messengers in Hong Kong, why are we banned yeah. in mainland China and in, yeah. in Beijing? So anyway, that's uh, it's pointing out the basics to people. But between you and me, I mean, how do you cope with this? How will you overcome this? Because a voice like yours is important. It needs to be said. You can't give up. Yeah. 
I, 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 you know, Yonan, uh, thank you for asking that question. Uh, and I think that's a very important question. And, 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 and I think that's a challenge a, a, a journalist uh, 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 faces almost on a, on a daily basis. I think in this era of, 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 of shield and, you know, the trolls and, 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 uh, and Reporting, it, the media is now based, uh, it's no longer based on facts. Feelings no. are more important yeah, now. Yeah, when people driven by emotions. And then I think that in fact, in my mind, as I'm definitely going to, to discuss this with my students, is that that in fact highlights the importance of being a good journalist, uh, 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 telling the truth. Right, no matter how difficult that situation is, it's the same thing. Like, you know, I have worked for SCMP for uh, uh, twenty-six years, and ever since the year two thousand, I was made the China editor. I had been a senior editor uh, for this newspaper for for, for more than twenty years. Right, so. <coughs> Over those 20 years, you know, there, were, there was lots of ridiculous mods and accusations, you know, unfounded accusations lobbed at SMP. And so what I have told uh, our staff was this, is that <coughs> we have to continue. I mean, our best way to rebut, of course, in this stage of internet and social media, I mean that you know if you you know somebody uh, 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 throws a mud against you, you cannot just just stay silent. Mm -hmm. You have to fight back. But I think a more important job is that, as I told uh, our staff at that time, is that we must do a better job to prove them wrong. I mean because China and China's rise is the biggest story of this century. And, uh, you know, of course, you will get trolls, you will get those guys throwing mud at you. But we are doing a too important job to be distracted by those people. I mean, because the, 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 the rise of China is so important for, for the rest of the world. And SCMP, you know, even though I'm no longer with SCMP, but I still uh, had this belief that the, the SCMP is the best platform where people will get authoritative, insightful, and independent information on China. I, you know, SCMP will continue. You know, uh, you know. I mean, that's the 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 the, uh, the thing that will make SCMP different from others. Now coming back to the question about why I'm coming back to Hong Kong. You see, I came back on November 27th that before I left SCMP at the end of October, I did two fail pieces explaining why I was uh, leaving SCMP, why I was coming back to Hong Kong. In one of the pieces that I have, I came up with this slogan like a phrase saying that to talk about why Hong Kong, uh, why Hong Kong is important to China, why you know why why I believe that Hong Kong has a bright future. 
it goes like this. It's saying that when, th when things are good for China, <coughs> China needs Hong Kong. When the times are bad for China, as they are, China needs Hong Kong more. And, 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 and this line goes down so well uh, among uh, SCMP readers in Hong Kong. You know, ever since I came back on November 27th, I have been invited to lunches and dinners with the political and the business elites. <laughs> and they, they like my line so much. And then one of the guys, a Hong Kong tycoon, I had lunch with him. And, 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 and he said he liked you know, what I said about the future of Hong Kong. And he also offered uh, this example to uh, illustrate my points. And I'm telling you, and I mean, s since then, I, I'm, I have also used this example. He's saying that, you know, I, you know, this is a public program, so I cannot really name that company. It's say a major US conglomerate a very senior executive of that US conglomerate uh, flew, I met him, I met the Hong Kong guy early December. So he said what happened two months ago, it's sometime in October. He said this, this American guy, very top executive with the major US conglomerate, flew to Hong Kong. His aim was to meet with the APAC, the Asia Pacific executives of, uh, you know, you know, you know, like Asia Pacific Conference, sort of those top executives working for his company. And, and, and China uh, was a very major business for this company. But this US executive would not fly to Beijing because he didn't want to be quarantined for 10 days. So what he did is he summoned all the top executives in APEC region to Hong Kong, where he had his meeting for a few days, and then the guy flew back to New York, and all the top China executives flew back to Beijing to be quarantined for 10 <laughs> days. You know, that <coughs> was an excellent point to show the, the, uh, the importance of Hong Kong. Because one country, two systems. Yeah, first of all, the one country, two system. Second is that Hong Kong's role as a bridge or window or super connector, whatever you call it, to the mainland, will become more important again, because in my mind, that China will become more politically isolated because of ideology, because geopolitical tensions, because of all of that. So what it means is that for lots of U.S. officials or businessmen, they will suddenly find that because of one country, two systems, uh, Hong Kong suddenly become another, again, Hong Kong's role as an outpost to, uh, to gain a better understanding with China has become more important again. It's just like the role that Hong Kong plays at the beginning of China's initial period of China's opening up in the late 1970s and in the 1980s, that you know, Hong Kong is the place where they can get people to talk about China. It, because of China's oppressive po political climate, now it's very difficult for foreign diplomats and businessmen to, to talk to Chinese officials or the Chinese analysts in Beijing. But 
it's much easier for them to get that. And uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that I believe Hong Kong will do will do better, and 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 and, and, and also why I'm I'm coming back to Hong Kong. I agree with you that Hong Kong is uh, becoming more relevant than ever in uh, in this particular aspect, uh, Shangwei. And I also fully accept all your compliments about the SCMP and the work we're doing. And uh, I must say, you have excellent taste in your news sources. Yeah. Thanks I very much, Shangwei, for being with us. I, I hope you will continue doing what you're doing because uh, voices like yours are also more relevant than ever in this Absolutely. current situation. Okay. Thanks very much. And we'll okay. talk again. Maybe come to the show again. Okay, I chat. will. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rhonda. Don't forget, you can find the video version of what you've just heard, as well as my other interviews with newsmakers on our YouTube channel. Just do a search for SEMP. If you're on Twitter, you can follow us on at SEMP News. And a reminder to visit our website, SEMP.com, for more of the good stuff. I'm Yondun Latu. Bye for now.